As Brother Gary mentioned earlier, it is indeed an honor that we each have been given today to come together. For isn't it said in John 4, 23, that in the Father seeketh such to worship Him, those who worship Him in spirit and in truth. And that's the purpose for which you and I have assembled this Lord's Day morning. Let me, in fact, make just a brief statement or two, if I might, about some of the opportunities. As you may well know, the Bible Bowl typically is something in which the congregation here has participated in years past. And then for the occurrences of that, I have often tried to prepare some puzzles so that all of us can study along with our youngsters or at least avail ourselves of a study of those books in the Bible. I have prepared a puzzle, and it's available there in the foyer, so if you'd like to have one as you leave, feel free to avail yourself of that. The books that are being studied this year are from the New Testament, the books of 1 Corinthians and Galatians. And so that opening puzzle will cover the first two chapters in the book of 1 Corinthians. In addition to that, perhaps it would be well to comment too, I failed to make mention to Brother Gary about uh, some vacation Bible schools in the area. I quickly made mention of these on Wednesday evening, but if it would be something of interest to you, I would encourage you to, to come to them. I know the brethren would be delighted to have you, but certainly I would request your prayers at least on my behalf. I've been invited to speak at the Zion Vacation Bible School in the adult class tomorrow evening. So that's June 3rd, so I'll be at the Zion congregation tomorrow night. Tuesday night, the All Good Church of Christ has invited me to be a part of their VBS, and so I'll be there in the attempt that night. Thursday night, the congregation at Carthage has invited me to be with them. And so if you would, please remember my family and me in prayers as we travel and, and participate in those activities this week. And certainly, again, I know that brethren will be delighted, even asked me to make sure to announce it so you could keep that whole VBS in your prayers and come if at all you can. In our time this morning, you may have noticed that Matt, as he read the lesson text a moment ago from 1 Chronicles 29, he read a pair of verses, verses 18 and 19, that prompt us to think about a lesson entitled, Parents, Prayer for Their Children. For the next few moments this morning, I would especially invite us as parents to think carefully about the nature of prayer, our prayer life, and how we might incorporate and include our children as we pray for the various things and individuals about us. I would be quick to say, though, for all the youngsters, the youth in our audience, I would hope that the lesson still is something that will be very meaningful for you, too, because I hope it will implant in your thought and heart the greatness of what your parents wish and hope for you and the nature of what kind of life that they genuinely want you to lead. As we study all those things, here are some initial opening introductory thoughts. We know that we love our children. They are extraordinarily precious to us. We, in fact, love them so much that we discipline them, we correct them, we challenge them when that's necessary, and all the while we surround them with arms of provision. We do all of that, of course, as the Bible instructs us as parents to do. All the while, as you look at all those things, it reminds us of this. How then should children be a subject of our prayer? When we are having family prayer or when we're praying in private, we as parents, of course, make mention of many things that weigh upon our heart. Maybe those things have to do, among other things, with the church. But what about the inclusion of our children? We do have an example, not just one, but we're going to choose the one in First Chronicles 29 this morning to prompt us as parents to think about 
how to incorporate those children into our prayer. As we might do that, here is some opening statements. Statements of blessing. Statements of high regard relative to what the Bible teaches concerning children. You'll notice starting from the very outset of that slide, the psalmist even so highly stated it in Psalm 127 verses 3 through 5, children are in heritage of the Lord. That in, in identically informs us that our children are prized gifts, albeit temporary from the perspective of you and me in the flesh, but what marvelous provision God has made. That same writer goes on to say two verses later, Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. We understand what a precious innocence they bring into our life. What joy, what excitement, what boundless energy we often see in their lives. And as those children bring before us those thoughts, may we understand as parents that they too, like we, are made in the image and in the likeness of God. It was there stated on the sixth day of God's creative activity in Genesis 1 verses 26 and 27. Male and female created He them in His image. The nature then of these youngsters having in fact been made in the image of God challenges us evermore to see the large chasm that exists between the way the Bible describes them and the way the human family on occasion has come to view them. There are those in our world who think that children are born in sin, that they are born contaminated with either Adam's sins or those of their parents, but such could not be further from the truth. It is true, isn't it, from Matthew, both chapters 18 and 19, from the lips of the Lord Himself, "'Suffer the little children to come unto Me, and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven.'" Matthew 19, 14. We notice there that on this occasion there were children that in fact had gathered around the Master. Even they were intrigued to hear and to listen and to watch. There were some who in fact were though somewhat less desirous of having the children about Him, but the Lord quickly corrected them and said, Suffer them to come, permit them to come, allow them to come, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. We do see in a child such a blessed innocence. They are in many ways so pure. We do see in Matthew 18 that an interesting statement is made about the kind of humility that children often exhibit. Isn't it true that a child often can in fact be somewhat sad, but a few moments later all is forgotten, all is forgiven, and everything is well again. Sometimes we as adults could learn much about that. We hold grudges, we often think badly of others, and we often allow that to fester in our heart for years when such ought not be. We too realize that we should be in a position to think on things that are honest and true and just and lovely and of good report, Philippians 4 verse number 8. When you think about the nature of what the Lord said in Matthew 18, doesn't that then prompt us as parents to think carefully about this? It is one thing to speak about the blessing that comes with children, but may we as parents recognize that that blessing, of course, comes with great duty, great responsibility, great obligation on our part. That perhaps is described in the following way. How well our children watch us from an early age. We can't fool them. They know if we are what we appear to others to be or not. They know what we're like at home. They know what we're like in the morning, in the midday, at night. They know what we're like. 
And in so doing, if we profess to others something different, they know we're hypocritical. They know we are not genuine and real, and they more than likely will have less respect for us because of it. Our children watch us so very carefully, and from an early age, they can be molded and shaped into a powerful citizen in the kingdom that one day will serve the Lord. There's a poem that was written some number of years ago. It's entitled, The Sculptor. Unfortunately, I do not know the author of that poem, but the poem goes like this. I would invite you to listen to the wording of it and hear the challenge in it to all of us who are parents. I took a piece of plastic clay and idly fashioned it one day, and as my fingers pressed it still, it moved and yielded to my will. I came again when days were past. That piece of clay was hard at last. The form I gave it, it still bore, and I could change that form no more. I took a piece of living clay and formed it gently day by day and fashioned it with power and art, a young child's soft and yielding heart. I came again when years were gone. It was a man I looked upon. He still that early impress bore, and I could change him nevermore. From an early age, our youngsters with whom we're blessed here, they may appear so young and so small, but you and I, by being faithful before them, Parents, as you lead them even now, you are setting before them and embedding within their heart the things that are going to be necessary many years ahead to have constructed in them the kind of person that they should be. It is in light of that that some of these admonitions are given. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Proverbs 22, 6. Paul, the peerless apostle in Ephesians 6 verse 4 said, Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. We as fathers and parents in general have a mighty obligation and we shall stand before the God of heaven in judgment and give an answer as to the degree to which we carried out those commandments. Our children have been entrusted to us for a while to train them, teach them, rule them, guide them. How effectively are we doing it? May I submit to you that one of the powerful avenues that we could use is prayer. How often do we pray for our children? How often do we include them by name in prayer? Hopeful to beseech God for His assistance to help us teach them, lead them in the way they should go. Most of the rest of this lesson will surround the topics that relate to that. For that reason, why don't we revisit that scene in 1 Chronicles 29. Here in the days of the Old Testament, we find the following set of ideas. We recall that it had been the idea, the desire of David to construct this permanent place of worship for God, the temple. That movable tabernacle, David felt that God needed something better than that. He needed something more exquisite, more extravagant. And thus, for quite some time, he collected materials, those things necessary for its building. However, in the early verses of 1 Chronicles 28, God, in fact, came to David and said, I would rather you, you are not to build it, for you yourself are a man of blood. It rather will be left for your son. At that point, David acquiesced to the statement of God and thus knew well it would be his son that would orchestrate and construct that temple. And so, near the end of David's life, there are a few things in these two chapters that are observed. First of all, you'll notice these three ideas. First of all, David gave a fatherly charge to his son. 
almost the parting statements of his life, what did he most want Solomon to remember and to appreciate? Secondly, we notice that David gave a kingly charge to all Israel. And finally, he made a worship and prayer to God. I think it's significant to observe one of the attributes of that prayer. What did David pray for? Amazingly enough, one of them was his son. Would you again read with me as we look at that text in 1 Chronicles 29? Let's begin in verse number 18 again, please. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the imagination of the thoughts of the heart of thy people, and prepare their heart unto thee. David at that moment prayed, based on the faithfulness of those patriarchs in days long gone by, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He prayed that the people of Israel would appreciate God's provision then as He had made it known in days past. And He said, Prepare their heart unto thee. David made a special general prayer that Israel would turn their attention to God, have a heart prepared to serve and be devoted to Him. But then verse 19, And give unto Solomon my son a perfect heart, to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes, and to do all these things, and to build the palace for the which I have made provision. At that point, let's then dissect verse 19, please. What are the specific matters incorporated in David's prayer for Solomon? Here was a father praying for his son. What did he mention? What did he include? What did he not include? The first thing you'll observe in his prayer was, Give unto Solomon a perfect heart to keep thy commandments. The highest thing on David's list in terms of praying for his son was that he might have a perfect heart to be obedient unto God. All the other attributes that one might quickly consider and that race into our heart and mind, notice they were not at all mentioned. What is your first desire in mind as we pray for our children? Is it that they might make a lot of money? That they might have a nice business? That they might in fact be athletic? There isn't anything inherently wrong with any of them, but what should our first petition be? What would be the thing most eternally significant? Is it not what David prayed? That my son, my daughter, the one whom I love so much and cherish so greatly that I want to go to heaven more than anything else. And in my prayer that I might pray, God, please let him or her, may their heart be tender to thy commandments. May their heart be directed toward the things of thee. May their love for the Lord and may their love for the truth be all-consuming. There could be no finer prayer than that for them. It is in light of that, look at some of the things at the bottom. I again would not want to say that praying for those other things is wrong. For after all, how sweet it is to appreciate that they too will have families of their own someday and they need to be able to provide for them. Paul did say in 1 Timothy 5, 8 that if one won't provide for his own, he's worse than an infidel and has denied the faith. So surely we want them to be a trade, have a trade and be schooled. But again, what should be our first priority? What about their spouse? Surely we want to pray that they will find a loving Christian, one who loves the Lord first and foremost, and thus who will be the proper husband or wife, as the case may be, and who can, of course, be the proper mother or father to your and my grandchildren. 
That kind of fascination tells us again, it's a sweet matter to find that one who is described in Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing. Stated from the male perspective there, but just as powerful from the female perspective. You'll notice that other things, to be a good citizen of the land, Romans 13.1, we would want our children to also appreciate that duty. Finally, to appreciate the nature of luxury. It isn't wrong to have things, but where should their first priority be? May I submit to you, David has set a great example here. And remember, David was the king. He had all the money he wanted. Solomon would be even richer than he. But yet his prayer was not directed toward possessions or things along that line. As you and I pray for our children... Maybe those prompt our attention toward yet other thoughts as well. Perhaps this would be an appropriate time to make mention of a warning that the Bible puts before us. I realize we live in a land and an age that's greatly blessed materially. So many things about us, food, shelter, clothing, all the trinkets and possessions that we can so easily find at department stores. It's easy, isn't it? in the light of the abundance of these things, to note this warning. It is true, riches can be a mixed blessing. In the Bible, riches on occasion were the very thing that separated a person from God. The person came to love the riches more than God, and the person came to love the possessions more than God. There was a rich young ruler that came with, with excitement before the Master in Luke 18. Beginning in verse number 18, it was he who said, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus first told him there's none good but one, and that's God. And he said, Keep the commandments. This one quickly affirmed that he had done. Jesus said, One more thing you lack. Go sell all you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. The text says he went away sorrowfully, for he had many riches. His riches were existent between him and his God, and that was simply unacceptable. He wasn't willing apparently to give them up. May you and I then, as we live in a world that's so often materialistic, may we never let them become our God. Covetousness is idolatry, reads Colossians 3 verse 5. Here we notice that that warning should rest with us. You'll notice next on that same slide... So many passages remind us of this same language that should be the example of your life and mine. You'll notice that here in verse 19 the prayer was, My son to have a perfect heart. But yet Jesus said in Matthew 5, 48, Be ye perfect. You and I are admonished to be complete. You and I are admonished to have hearts of devotion. And if our children shall see that example in us then it's more likely they will understand what a great honor that is. This lesson not only shows us that, but what about that text in Mark chapter 8? The last two verses of that chapter, in fact, challenge us in this way. What shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? If our youngsters have seen us give our life to work but not be faithful to the Lord. What have we set before them but a bad example? You see, all that we've worked for, we're going to leave behind here. There's only, the only treasures that shall last for us are the ones we've stored up in heaven. Maybe that points us to that final set of verses. In 1 Timothy 
in which we see again the nature of godliness and how important that is, we're reminded as parents that maybe in prayer we ought to mention our children by name and pray like David did that he or she would have a perfect heart to keep thy commandments, thy statutes, thy laws. You'll notice that the New Testament seems to have this very idea embedded for us in another place. In 2 John, little one-chapter book near the end of the New Testament, verses 1 and 4, John, in fact, was so thankful for the elect lady. That word in Greek is Kyria, and as John was thankful for her, he made mention that she walked in truth and her children walked in truth. And he highly commended them for that. What about that commendation of your family and mine? Could it be said that he, they, and their children are walking in truth? If so, no finer commendation of your family or mine can be uttered than that. If that isn't true, why not make it so? Why not labor with great intensity to make it so? That brings us to the next thing for which David prayed. In verse number 19, "...not only to keep thy commandments, thy testimonies, and thy statutes..." But then he says, and to do all these things. To do all these things. That word do is a word of action. And you'll notice that leads us to some of these comments. David, it would seem, had the desire to pray that his son would be excited and enthusiastic about the things of the work of God. That he would find that work eager. He would find it interesting. I think you and I recognize even to this day that when one can use his skills, his abilities, and his talents, that makes one feel better inside and it allows one to see a mission, a purpose in life. Maybe that's the very thought that's before us here. I'd like to ask another question. Do you and I as parents encourage our children to think about work in the kingdom of God? We send them to school, they learn their math, their science, their English, their history, their other kinds of subjects, and we want them to have a good career for a lifetime. From an early age, do we encourage our sons to be gospel preachers, to be elders of the church, to be Bible class teachers? Do they hear us encourage them along that way from an early age? What about our daughters? Do we encourage them that they might be faithful wives of preachers, elders, Bible class teachers, as the case may be? If we never speak of those things, it's unlikely our children will think of them very much. But if we from an early age encourage them, think about that, son. You're a good speaker. Have you ever thought about preaching? A Bible class? It may not happen in a few days, but as that thought genders in mind, and as his talents continue to increase, who knows but what that day may come when, under the greatness of privilege offered to him, he'll preach the gospel. May I suggest that we as parents are the single greatest influence for determining the future leadership of the church. We are the ones that will determine the elders and preachers for the next generation. And if we don't encourage it, there aren't going to be many of them. There aren't going to be nearly enough to feel the characteristics of the churches of our Lord in this area. That responsibility has been given to us. As you'll notice near the bottom of that slide, those questions prompt us to think of it like this. In 1 Peter 4 verse 10, we are commanded to use our abilities and our skills in a way that glorify the God of heaven... Are you and I doing that? Are we praying that our children may do that? 
I certainly can say that my family's been dramatically blessed with capabilities and talents. The girls far in far many ways in which I am not. I'm thankful that each of us, though, can be used in the kingdom of God. And the same is true of your family. Your children will have skills that you don't have. You also have ones they don't. But there's work that we all can do. That work perhaps brings us to the devotion of Daniel. The last part of that section of our lesson today. Recall Daniel was a youth. As that book opens in Daniel chapter 1, we recall he was taken into captivity. Dragged far away from his homeland, a strange place, surrounded by strange people in a strange land. And yet his devotion to God was highlighted in words like this. Daniel purposed in his heart not to defile himself. The training his parents had instilled in him, he did not give up. It was a part of him. And may I suggest that's part of what it means to train up a child in the way he should go. That kind of training brings us then to the last thing that David prayed for Solomon in this passage. In verse number 19 it says, "...and to build the palace, for the which I have made provision." Emphasis here is upon the work, it would seem, of God. Those materials that had been accumulated by David, Solomon now was to use them, and David knew that that would be a tremendous undertaking. It would be time-consuming. It would be challenging and difficult. And you'll notice, in fact, here are a few of the details. We do learn that Solomon proceeded to follow through with the construction of that temple. 180,000 workers at least labored seven years to build that temple. The finest stone, wood, metals, gold, silver, finery was utilized in its construction. I'm sure the challenge was enormous. As you can see... David prayed that Solomon would have the fortitude to complete it. Do you and I as parents pray that our children may have the fortitude to complete the Christian life? To see them baptized is marvelous and wonderful. Tears will stream down your face when your children make that decision. But we also want them to have a lifetime of faithfulness. That they might be dedicated and devoted to the cause of the Lord all throughout their life. You'll notice that dedication points us to the fact that this temple was used for a long, long time by a lot of people. It was a blessing to them. It allowed them to draw nearer to God. May your children and mine also be the same. May they assist others to come to know Jesus. May they be the thoroughfare through whom others can appreciate the glory and rightfulness of the Master in high. You'll notice that this final slide reminds us again about that work. The work of God will require sacrifices. It will require investments. And I don't mean monetary. Our children, if they are to be faithful to the Lord, may have to not participate in certain things. And others may frown upon that and they may be ridiculed and insulted. May we as parents pray that our children will have enough fortitude and enough determination to not give up the work for the Lord. That kind of thing is important for even you and I as older ones, aren't we? In Ecclesiastes 9 verse 10, Whatsoever thy hand findeth to do, do it with thy might. In Colossians 3.23, we are taught to work heartily on those things that are of the Lord. May we pray that for our children. 
It is for those reasons that the last thoughts on that slide challenge us with these questions and these comments. Do you and I encourage our children, maybe as much as we could, to sustain in their work for the Lord? It does seem that society is becoming more anti-Christian with each day. They are going to need to be more steadfast perhaps than we have been. Are we praying that they'll have the fortitude, the internal dedication to the cause of God that they might carry through? May we pray for it. Maybe the last question of the lesson today then is this one. Having said all these things, the far-reaching idea is this. We want our children to go to heaven. Wouldn't it be a tragedy beyond description to arrive at heaven and your son and daughter not be there? We want more than anything else for them to be saved. We want them to be faithful. We want them to live a life of dedication to the Lord. David prayed for Solomon that he might be faithful to God's commandments. He might keep his testimonies, his statutes, his laws. He then prayed that in fact he might build the tabernacle and do these things. Today, what about you and what about me as parents? When we pray for our children, what are we praying? Is it just for their job, their spouse, their career? Again, it isn't incorrect to pray for those things, but our first prayer, it would seem, should be in tune to what David's was. I would ask all of us as parents then to think as we close this lesson about that very matter. And are you setting an example before your children? And am I doing that as I should? Do you pray often? Do you study the Bible? Are you found giving your attention to the things of God? If not, there's no one holding you back but you. In a moment, we're going to stand and sing a hymn of encouragement. And it is a time of response. The invitation of God is open all the time, of course. But this is a convenient time. It's a time of encouragement. And if we could be of some assistance to you today... We'd be delighted to do that. Let me say, if you were once a faithful Christian, you were in fact very enthusiastic and energetic about the work of God, but you no longer are. You have become wayward. You haven't done the things you should. You've said things in public and your children have heard them. And you know the example has not been as it ought to have been. Why not talk to your children? Say to them you've been wrong and say to them that you want to do some things different. If your statements have been of a public character to the point you need to come forward today, why not do it? You don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. It may be, though, there's one or more in the audience that's never yet been baptized. The plan of salvation sets before us these things in order. Hear the blessed message of the gospel. Upon hearing it, believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the name of Jesus as the Savior and be baptized for the remission of sins. It could be that there is a person, old or young, today who is in that very position and your heart's been pricked. You know that things are not well with your soul. You're old enough to know wrong from right and you have not yet had your sins washed away. Let that be changed today. If we could help you in that regard, whether any of those circumstances would be yours, if we could be of assistance to you, just with prayers of encouragement and support, we'd be delighted to do that. At this point, this song has been selected, and the lesson closes with this question. What are we praying for our children? Is our example as it should be? If we could help you making that correct, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?